me, Carrie Harrison, each and every Friday at 9 a.m. For Rethinking Heroes, that's Rethinking Heroes, Friday mornings at 9, here and only here on KPFK 90.7 Los Angeles. Rethinking Heroes. This is Arturo Ofarri, y estoy gozando. I'm having a great time listening to Canto Tropical, offering you the best in salsa and Afro-Cuban music since 1986. Every Saturday from 8 to 10 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles 90.7 FM. Don't miss it. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Billboards across Iran's capital proclaim that women should wear their mandatory headscarves to honor their mothers. But perhaps for the first time since the chaotic days following Iran's 1979 Islamic Revolution, more women, both young and old, choose not to do so. Some women say they've had enough, no matter the consequence. And they say they are fighting for more freedom in Iran and a better future for their daughters. Good evening, I'm Angela Birdsong. Here are today's headlines. At least 25 killed and 42 wounded by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza since Tuesday. More news highlights from outside the NATO-controlled media sphere. Renovations become evictions in our call Renovictions in Santa Barbara. The Writers Guild Association strike and the community calendar, all this and more coming up. The city of Inglewood has received an additional $100 million towards construction of the Inglewood Transit Connector project. Los Angeles Wave Emily St. John rep reports the South Bay City's Council of Governments voted to reprioritize more than $100 million originally allocated to fund a proposed Sentinella grade separation project on the K-Line at the intersection of Sentinella and Florence to instead serve as a backstop or reserve funding for the transit connector. James T. Butts, the mayor of Inglewood, said, quote, the entire South Bay has participated in Inglewood's renaissance, and we couldn't be more pleased with the continued support demonstrated by this vote, end of quote. He further says we aren't individual cities and we are managing an ecosystem of transportation solutions that benefits the entire region. George Chen Mayor of Torrance and South Bay City's Council of Governments director agreed, saying, quote, the Inglewood Transit Connector Project is a critical missing component of our region's transit system, and we must all work with urgency to move forward. End of quote. Eventually, the C-Line extension to Torrance will connect to this project, providing transportation for Torrance's residents and others in the region. The Inglewood Transit Connector, a 1.6-mile three-station, fully elevated and electrical-powered automated transit system, will connect passengers from, to and from the Metro K-Lines to downtown Inglewood Station, to the city's new housing, employment, and sports and entertainment areas. Inglewood is still seeking the Federal Capital Improvement Grant and funding from the Entertainment District private owners and financing from project design construction proposers to complete the funding needed to begin construction. The city has yet to reveal how it will fund maintenance and operations of the line once it's built. The nation's largest employer, the federal government, wants to ban salary history questions from its own interview process. 
Axios Emily Peck reports, it matters relying on a job applicant's current salary to determine their pay can perpetuate unfairness, and scholars have long argued. It can exacerbate pay gaps that effectively anchoring some candidates to lower wages throughout their careers. The U.S. Office of Personnel Management, which oversees 2.2 million federal employees, released a proposed regulation yesterday morning that would prohibit federal agencies from using a job candidate's current or past salary to determine pay in most federal jobs. 21 states already either ban salary history questions or regulate them to some extent. This regulation would lead to more change. Federal workforce standards often influence how the private sector operates. The big picture is women in the U.S. earn an average of 17% less than men. That number has hardly budged for years. Because pay is more transparent for federal workers than in the private sector, the gender gap for federal workers is narrower. Women are paid now about 6% less than men on average. Gaps between people of color and white men look wider. Black men earn 15.6% less than white men on average in federal roles per Office of Personnel Management's data. Black women earn 15.2% less than white men. More on the Writers Guild Association strike with Dan McQuarrie in his interview with Eric Thurm, who wrote a comprehensive article in GQ magazine titled All About the Writers Strike, What Does the WGA Want and Why Are They Fighting So Hard for It? I know you're a freelance writer and so am I. I was just wondering um, uh, how we can help uh, support the strike through the Freelance Solidarity Project, which is the, the digital media division of the, the National Writers Union. Really, I think a lot of it is just, you know, talking to or, or finding ways to talk to and listen to what kind of support the, the guild is, like, sort of directly asking for. Um, because I think that a lot of the time, or I've seen a little bit of people, you know, saying, oh, you should cancel this subscription or, like, not watch these shows or, you know, all this other stuff that I think comes from a, a really, like, good place, but that, and I'm sure you, you know, know this, and but uh, it's challenging when, you know, those those demands and those sort of shows of power are not coming from the guild and are being done in this kind of, like, haphazard way. So, you know, they're on, on the sort of, like, monetary front. There are a lot of different sort of funds that, you know, they're asking for people to donate to. And I think that's especially the case for below the line, you know, for, for people that are workers who uh, are not in the guild, but, you know, now don't have work because these productions have shut down and the guild is trying to make sure that those people uh, are being taken care of uh, to sort of whatever degree possible. I think for people who are in New York or L.A., like people really should try to make it out to the picket line. And in particular, for, for freelancers who might have really flexible schedules, uh, one of the things that has come up is that, you know, the, the studios are trying to continue filming on a lot of stuff and, you know, through the sort of loophole that, that quote-unquote, the scripts are done. And, you know, I, I think there's, like, a lot to say about whether that's, like, really possible because I think my sense is that there's a lot of stuff that sort of changes, like, during filming and that, you know, a lot of that constitutes writing. But that even in theory, if that was happening, that the pickets have been really useful in preventing that uh, from happening because uh, the IATSE crews and, like, and Teamsters and, and other people are refusing to and don't have to cross the picket line. Um, so we've seen in the last few days a couple of shows where 
you know, they'll be trying to film um, somewhere in the Bronx or, you know, in, in sort of North Brooklyn. And a couple of writers who were able to sort of hold the picket line for a few hours uh, will sort of, you know, succeed in, in winning and the studio blinks and shuts down production. And I think that to whatever extent people are able to show up, especially to those kinds of needs, because uh, it's a lot less, you know, there's like a ton of scheduled tickets and like people absolutely should go to that. But for, for purposes of sort of materially supporting the strike, I think it, it would be really useful to have more people who have flexible hours who are able to show up uh, to some of these more sort of specific locations. And, and and I think just in general, you know, if people are able to, like, showing up and, and you know, introducing yourselves to, to writers who are picketing and, and sort of, standing clearly in solidarity as freelancers and I think being aware of the fact that for a lot of people, certainly for like a lot of FSC members and for I think a lot of people in general, the the struggles are I think a lot more connected than than people realize at first. The conditions that the guild is is trying to stop are in a lot of ways conditions that have already been imposed uh, on a lot of freelancers. And I think that uh, there's a lot to think about in, in terms of, you know, what does it look like for these writers to sort of stand up and uh, uh, really clarify, uh, undeniably clarify the value and importance of their work, um, you know, and what does it look like for that to be in conversation with, with ways that freelancers can do that as well. That's sort of an ongoing, I think, thing that, that uh, people who organize freelancers have been thinking about for a while. I think another thing that uh, I don't know if you – Canada's not being on the East Coast, but out here everybody's got a script they're, they're working on. And uh, I, I think uh, our fellow freelancers need to know that now is not the time to go in and negotiate uh, a, uh, a contract for a, um, a film or, or a TV series because that can actually bar you from, from being a WGA member in the future. Yeah, and, and I mean maybe maybe I'm I'm naive. Like I I don't feel like I've seen anybody saying that, and I guess they wouldn't. You know, you would hide it. But uh, uh, I would like to think that people are sort of aware that 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 is the entire point, right? Of of if people are coming to you with those kinds of offers that they are trying to break the strike, and that there are like many reasons that are sort of both like broader and like self interested ones, like you mentioned. Uh, to not do that, because as I think a number of folks have said, even even in the worst case scenario, the strike will end, and the guild rules are not going to change. So if if anybody does, you know, sort of do that uh, in a way that crosses the picket line, and in, in the way that you know is doing sort of struck or scab work, eventually those rules are going to kick back in, and then you have nobody to blame but yourself. Do you know anything about the healthcare situation, or are they extending the healthcare? Or have you heard anything about that? Yeah, I don't know what that uh, is like for the Guild. I do know that that has been uh, an issue that a lot of people have talked about in SAG in particular, which I think is one of the reasons that I, I suspect slash hope. I mean, we'll see. But that, you know, I think SAG may may also end up out with the Guild. And, and that's, like, one of the big things, I, I you know, that I've, like, sort of seen members saying online or that people talk about in the press. I think that the way that that works for, for, for a lot of these workers uh, – is one of many sort of pieces of evidence for uh, why it is not a good idea to tie people's health care to their employment status. Are you going to be going out uh, visiting picket lines and sort of have, uh, keeping an eye on what's going on with the strike? I hope so. I mean, I don't even really see it. I, maybe there's like a little bit of sort of keeping an eye on things, but I, I really see it just as like being supportive like there are a decent number of, of NWU and FSP members in, in New York. And I think to the extent that we're able to sort of mobilize and, and show up, it feels important to do that. And I think it definitely is helpful to, you know, at least for me to have a sense of how that is going, but really I think sort of uh, uh, first and foremost, like I just want to be able to show up uh, in, 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 you know, whatever ways are sort of helpful or, or meaningful um, you know, that, that will, will contribute to, uh, the, the writers and hopefully all of the other, uh, Hollywood unions, like, you know, winning, winning this, this fight. Good. Thank you so much for, for, uh, talking with me, Eric. Uh, this is Eric Thurm 
for uh, writing for GQ magazine on this uh, WGA strike. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. The Santa Barbara Tenants Union hopes to end rent evictions in Santa Barbara County. KPFK's Marcy Winograde reports. The Santa Barbara Tenants Union is calling on the Santa Barbara County Board of Supervisors to pass a rent eviction moratorium until Santa Barbara's housing crisis is over. The union's proposed ordinance would ensure the tenant ordered out of the unit during remodeling, could sign a one-year lease to re-rent the unit at the same rent prior to the remodel. Recently, the county supervisors amended their eviction ordinance to require landlords to provide all necessary building permits before issuing eviction notices for remodeling. The amended ordinance followed hundreds of complaints from tenants who received mass eviction notices from Core Spaces, a Chicago developer who purchased three Isla Vista apartment complexes for $92 million, only to evict the tenants the following day in what the tenants' union calls renovictions. The chief operating officer of Core Spaces, Chris Richards, told the press the purchased buildings are in need of renovations to replace the roof, windows, and electrical panels, along with years of deferred maintenance. A statement from the Santa Barbara Tenants' Union reads, We're up against a multi-billion dollar flipper developer spreading mass misinformation, intimidation, the threats of eviction, and fundamentally what is unfettered profit-seeking at the expense of the health and safety of our community. In contrast... The CoreSpaces website says the company delivers world-class amenities with a hospitality-driven approach providing a better daily life for its residents. Those facing eviction at the Isla Vista apartments include not only UCSB students, but also families with children, the disabled, and older adults on fixed incomes. In other news, the Department of Justice announced two Santa Barbara County men have been indicted on federal charges for allegedly distributing fentanyl that led to the death of a Santa Maria man in jail custody and serious injury to a second man. The U.S. Attorney's Office recently announced 12 criminal cases against California residents who allegedly sold fentanyl and fake pills. According to the U.S. Justice Department, social media platforms have made fentanyl widely available to anyone with a smartphone and turned every neighborhood into an open-air drug market. The announcement follows a fentanyl death of a UCSB student at Deltopia, Isla Vista's annual street party at the end of spring break. The Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office reported that Deltopia on April 8th through the 9th had a big increase in arrests, citations, and medical calls compared to recent years. Meanwhile, an Isla Vista apartment owner is suing the Poppin' Party app over last month's Deltopia party with the lawsuit alleging nuisance and negligence. In Washington, D.C., Congressman Salud Carbajal and a group of 12 other members of Congress from California are urging the U.S. Department of Commerce to stop stalling and prioritize the designation process for the Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary that's off the central coast of California. In a letter to Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, the California lawmakers emphasized the potential benefits of the nearly 8,000-square-mile sanctuary. The benefits? Ecological and biological protections for California marine life, as well as the value of recognizing the Native American stewardship of the coastal waters. The Department of Commerce formally moved the proposed sanctuary into the designation phase. That was back in November of 2021. The public scoping process was completed more than a year ago. What's taking so long to make the sanctuary designation official? That's not clear in the press release. Perhaps the bureaucratic inertia or competing demands on the Commerce Department. In the letter, lawmakers say the sanctuary will establish protections for a biologically diverse and eco ecologically productive region, including feeding grounds for whales and dolphins, sea otters, kelp forests, and abalone. The letter reads, these abundant waters are essential to the heritage of the ocean-going first people of the Pacific coast. Elsewhere, Food Bank of Santa Barbara County is partnering with the National Association of Letter Carriers for their Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive this Saturday, May 13th. Postal customers can donate non-perishable food items by leaving them next to mailboxes. What's in demand? The most needed foods for the drive are nut butters, 
canned protein, tuna, chicken, salmon, whole grain cereals, pasta, canned pasta, beans, canned corn, and healthy soups. According to the nonprofit Santa Barbara Foundation, 10% of county residents, or 41,000 people, are food insecure. Covering Santa Barbara, Chumash Land, I'm Marcy Winograd for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. We're on the KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. What is domestic violence? Hitting, slapping, punching, kicking, pushing, biting, using weapons, forced sexual activity, putting down, name calling, yelling, playing mind games, controlling of all your finances, threatening to harm their children, family members, or pets or call authorities, stalking. If you have experienced any of the above forms of abuse caused in an intimate partner relationship, you may be a victim of domestic violence. Services are available to help you end the abuse in your life and the lives of your family. If you need help right away or are experiencing domestic violence, call one of the following hotlines. Los Angeles County Domestic Violence Hotline. 1-800-978-3600 National Domestic Violence Hotline 1-800-799-7233 They are both operational 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. Commodores, who chose their name by selecting a word randomly in a dictionary. The Commodores, an American funk and soul band, formed in 1968, while the six-man band members attended college at Tuskegee Institute, now called Tuskegee University. They quickly made a name for themselves, catching the eye of the Jackson 5 and Barry Gordy, and they signed with Motown in November 1972 as Motown's largest-selling act Throughout the 70s and 80s, the Commodores achieved one Grammy Award out of nine nominations and have sold over 70 million albums worldwide. 
Community Coalition, a grassroots organizing institution here in South Los Angeles, is standing with workers in L.A.'s thriving tourism industry to support their fight to transform the tourism industry into one that sustains families and builds healthy communities. According to this community-based organization, quote, these workers can't afford to live in our city and they struggle to meet ends meet. An LAX worker or hotel housekeeper would have to work 14 hours a day to afford a two-bedroom apartment in Los Angeles, end of quote. They report that public dollars bailed out the tourism industry from the pandemic and are investing in future growth. Airports nationwide are allocated $1 billion to provide wealthy airport concessionaires with pandemic-related rent relief. LAX is investing $6 billion in an expansion, assuring growth for the industry and workers should see additional benefits via an increase in wages. The hotel industry got $14 billion in paycheck protection loans that were supposed to go to worker wages, but only one-third did. In 2022, the hotel, the U.S. hotel industry reported that the average daily rate and revenue per available room were the highest for any year on record, according to the 2022 data from STR, a global hospitality industry data provider. Los Angeles is number one in the nation for new hotel rooms. The proposed ordinance will cover three items. Raise the living wage for tourism workers to $25 per hour now and $30 per hour by 2028. Ensure that the health care tourism workers get is quality care. And limit outsourcing and provide stronger enforcement tools to the city. Tourism Workers Rising will be at the Economic and Community Development Committee hearing to show support of the policy on Wednesday, May 17th, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. at Los Angeles City Hall, 200 North Spring Street in downtown Los Angeles. The Apple weather forecast for this weekend in North Hollywood at KPFK 90.7 FM shows mid to low 80s at our sister stations in Southern California, low 70s in San Diego. Santa Barbara is looking at low to high 70s and low to mid 90s in Ridgecrest, China Lake. Washington has nearly two centuries in the driver's seat in this half of the globe. Over the past decades, however, it has seen its influence waning. Now in the context of a global multipolar awakening from post-war U.S. hegemony, but the process has the contradictions implicit to what Lenin referred to as the law of uneven development. Don DeBar has more. This December will mark the 200th anniversary of the declaration of the so-called Monroe Doctrine, a U.S. foreign policy position which holds that any intervention in the political affairs of any country in the Western Hemisphere is a potentially hostile act against the United States. It was first articulated by then-President James Monroe on December 2, 1823, during his 7th Annual State of the Union Address. At that time, nearly all of the Spanish colonies in the Western Hemisphere had either achieved or were about to achieve independence. Monroe asserted that the New World and the Old World were to remain distinctly separate spheres of influence and that efforts by European powers to control or influence states in the region would be viewed as a threat to U.S. national security. In return, the U.S., he said, would recognize and not interfere with existing European colonies, nor meddle in the internal affairs of European countries. The Monroe Doctrine has been the bane of the existence of most of the nations in the Western Hemisphere who have suffered Washington's interference in their internal affairs for the past two centuries. The pushback, however, has been steady, particularly since the Cuban Revolution in 1959, and a variety of other hot spots challenging U.S. domination, including the Sandinista Revolution in 1979 in Nicaragua, and up to and including the development of Bolivarianism in Venezuela and elsewhere. 
particularly in the last 20-some-odd years. A growing number of states have exercised their independence from the U.S. That exercise, however, has resembled a tug-of-war from time to time in places like Argentina, Brazil, Bolivia, Honduras, and elsewhere. One of the weapons that's been used by the U.S. and or its allies on the ground in various countries in the hemisphere has been a process known as lawfare, where the veneer of legality is used to accomplish a soft coup or other impairment of democratic rights and or a democratically elected government. There are even more subtle approaches that have been developed and taken in a variety of places, and today we will discuss several of those, first with Stephen Sefton, speaking with us from Esteli, Nicaragua, and then with Camila Escalante, speaking with us from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Stephen, there's an awful lot of really complex stuff here. Why don't you start? I think you're right, Don. There are are very complex processes at work um, in the region, especially in the context of the developing uh, multipolar world that we're seeing uh, take shape uh, in front of our eyes. So uh, 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 we've seen this over the last year or so, and it will continue to develop, and it's going to be a constant theme in our discussions, I think, in the future. Yes, yeah, a but global that, phenomenon, too, context. not just regional, but a global phenomenon. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And in, and in the regional context, this certainly does present a dilemma to the regional right-wing political forces um, and the uh, economic interests, the uh, right-wing economic interests of the the regional elites in the respective countries in the region. Um, And the the, the events that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, over the last couple of months in particular, um, in relation to how the right-wing forces in the region are reconfiguring their attempt to uh, keep their their grip on power and their control uh, over their respective countries, economies, and societies is, is you know you you can see it happening very very clearly in different ways, and we we've spoken in the past on about the use of lawfare with, whereby the right wing will target progressive political leaders to prevent them from coming to power. And it seems to me that now what we're seeing in the region, um, in countries where there was much much political optimism about the change of government, for example, in Colombia with Gustavo Petro, in Mexico with Andres Manuel López Obrador, and in Argentina with the um, government of Alberto Fernández, perhaps. And there, 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 there's more, there's a lot more to say about the, the case of Argentina. But in general, people were optimistic that with these progressive leaders, there would be positive change um, in uh, the, 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 their respective countries and in the region as a whole. And now what we're seeing is the, 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 the way the right-wing forces in those countries are mobilizing the levers of, uh, using the levers of power that they have, especially in terms of their control of the judiciary, for example, um, to, uh, uh, to impede the, the free implementation of the very positive uh, economic and um, uh, social reforms that people, leaders like Gustavo Petro and Andres Manuel López Obrador and Alberto Fernández and uh, his, his vice president, Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, had, um, were, were, were hoping to implement. For example, in Mexico, we've seen over the last um, week or so that the Supreme Court in Mexico is uh, preventing Andres Manuel López Obrador from carrying out certain reforms that he was hoping to to, to implement. In um, Argentina, we've seen the Supreme Court there. Um, uh, uh, just this week, they, they, they issued a, a judgment um, rendering inapplicable, according to, to, to their judgment, the results in provincial elections a couple of provincial elections in Argentina, and that has brought them into conflict with the government, a conflict that had already been set in motion by the the the, the, uh, the President Alberto Fernandez's objection to the way the Supreme Court had dealt with the case, a, 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 a case of alleged corruption against his Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. Right. So that been ongoing there. And in Colombia over the last week or so, um, we've had uh, a developing uh, 
perhaps conflict is to to put it too strongly. Maybe spat so, a spat, maybe. Yeah, maybe a spat between the the Supreme Court um, on the side of the public prosecutor, um, who has uh, criticised um, Gustavo Petro's handling of the country's internal security situation, yeah. and that came on top of um, a dis the the fallout from the decision by Gustavo Petro uh, a couple of weeks ago to reshuffle his cabinet, in which he um, dismissed uh, five or six ministers from his cabinet who he regarded as holding up um, his important reforms in terms of land reform, and in particular um, his projected health reform. So uh, you're, you're, in those three countries, you have this pattern of the right wing using the, their levers of power uh, especially in relation to their respective countries' judicial systems, not now, not to target uh, individual progressive leaders from actually uh, coming to government. They're, what they're doing now is they're actually targeting the reform programs um, that these leaders who've now been elected to uh, the, the to to lead their their country's governments. Their reform programs are now in jeopardy because the right wing is mobilizing the judiciary to uh, prevent them implementing those reforms. That's an interesting uh, tactical shift, too. Um, in other words, we're, we don't care at some point in time who comes to power because we have constraints on that power so that it can only be exercised in ways that are satisfactory to us. Camilla, you've been looking at this development in Chile, right? Maybe you could uh, fill us in with some detail there. Well, this election that took place on Sunday is an indication of how Chileans feel. It really was a referendum on this new government of Gabriel Boric, who positions himself, postures himself as some sort of a progressive, left-leaning, but a young face to that. He's very clearly quite anti-socialist, let's say, and very pro-Washington. But they held an election that was to um, elect the the uh, the political forces that will be drafting the new Chilean constitution. And the outcome was a major defeat for Gabriel Boric. So on Sunday, Chileans cast their ballots. And what happened was out of the 51 seats uh, that will be drafting this new constitution, the right and the far right of Chile obtained the majority. And 34 of those 51 seats went to the right wing. Right. And this is, you know, the parties of Jose Antonio Cast, who was with the, the far right candidate in the previous presidential election, right. and uh, a great number of seats to the Pinochetistas, uh, the supporters of the military dictatorship, essentially. And the left only won 16 seats. And so, you know, Boric's people were, you know, are like nowhere to be found in this process. And what this says, I think, is that people are, you know, people in Chile, just like in the rest of Latin America, are done with the pandering to the exterior, the pandering to the United States. They want less of this sort of marketing campaign, marketing Boric as some sort of a champion of democracy and human rights. And what they really want is the actual reforms promised during the campaign period or whatever, in which they would say, which they said that they would be implementing. They want more actual working to better the conditions of regular people. And that's something that, for example, the government of Lula in Brazil has been really successful in doing. And just to give an example of what Gabriel Borch has been doing during this time, instead of campaigning and trying to, you know, gain, uh, you know, get people who were part of his coalition and those voters who brought him um, into power with historic numbers, he was busy uh you know, trying to meet with Zelensky, talk about the Ukraine issue and the conflict that has nothing to do with Chileans' day-to-day -day lives. And he was also focused on, for example, attacking Nicaragua's human rights record. And so I think people are really done with this. It really, you know, doesn't matter what party a candidate comes from, but they promise certain things during the campaign. They posture themselves as a certain way. And these people want to see their lives uh, better. They don't want to see things getting harder the cost of living is is increasing and so you know this was a huge and very strong message to this government that will now have a very difficult time being reelected well this is the second draft of the constitution the first one had been voted down this one will be voted on in december and we'll be watching until then thank you Stephen and camilla for your time and expertise and we will speak again with you next week thanks, thanks so much guys for kpfk i'm don debar
And now international news from non-NATO media with Polina Vasiliev. For KPFK Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. Israeli airstrikes on Gaza have killed at least 25 and wounded another 42 people since Tuesday. Among them are women and children, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. RT Middle East correspondent Marina Finoshina has more. The attacks are escalating. Israel continues its large-scale offensive against Gaza, or more precisely, against Islamic Jihad, Palestinian militant group based in the Strip. Dozens of fighters and helicopters are involved in shield and aero operation. Israel earlier eliminated three top military commanders of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, including the one responsible for northern regions and the one in charge of directing uh, operations in the West Bank. That's a very, a very important person. The international community condemned the Israeli actions that led to civilian casualties. The U.S. called on all sides to come down, but stressed that Israel had its right to protect itself. China, Russia are currently reportedly calling on the U.N. Security Council to convene, but no exact information on that whatsoever. This is what residents of Gaza, who have been living under strikes in the last 48 hours, are saying. Let's take a listen. We in the Gaza Strip are trying to survive despite the constant bombardment. The situation in Gaza is very tragic and confusing, especially since children and women are terrified by the aggression and bombing of the Gaza Strip. Children live in a state of terror and apprehension because of this severe aggression, and we ask God that this aggression ends soon. The resistance in Gaza will not stop just because Israel bombs the buildings in Gaza. But we affirm that resistance is the weapon and the struggle of the Palestinian people. Less than 24 hours after the Israeli operation started, there came a response from Gaza. IDF says that more than 400 rockets were fired to Israel. Sirens were heard all throughout the Israeli southern communities and in the central part of the country, including in um, Tel Aviv. There were several direct hits in the cities of Zderot and Ashkelon, not far from Gaza. No casualties have been so far reported from the Israeli side. We heard that several people were injured, those rushing to shelters. Palestinians have earlier reported that Hamas, the major militant group based in Gaza and ruling Gaza, joined the fighting, but this information was not confirmed neither by Hamas or by Israeli sources. The EU, Egypt and Qatar are currently leading a mediation process to ease the tensions between Israel and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Even there were reports that there was a kind of ceasefire agreed between the sides, but we were able to reach out to the Egyptian side close to the mediation process and they said that no sign of truce so far. So we may expect more escalation on the ground in the coming hours. The European Union's foreign policy towards Africa has come under scrutiny as the humanitarian situation in Sudan deteriorates. There have been calls in the European Parliament for the bloc to provide asylum to Sudanese refugees amid heavy clashes between rival military forces. Jerome Hughes reports from Brussels. EU leaders are accused of failing the people of Sudan. The 27-nation bloc's weak foreign policy in Africa has allowed tensions to develop into chaos and carnage, according to some legislators in the European Parliament. We must understand that hoping for the best is not sufficient. If we do not engage constructively and in a timely, effective manner, we will always need to run for cover when it is already too late. It's the rapid support forces versus the Sudanese armed forces. Rival generals, once allies, are battling it out. The West were happy to legitimize our de facto military dictatorship because this is the arrangement that has served our financial interests and the interests of the IMF and the World Bank for many years. In the Sudanese capital Khartoum, hundreds of people have been killed and thousands injured. The situation in Darfur and other regions is also dire. When it comes to African nations, the West is accused by critics of only ever having been interested in pillaging natural resources, such as gold, diamonds and oil. 
At least 450,000 people have been forced to flee their homes in Sudan since war broke out on April 15th. Let us not allow for a new tragedy, or at least do the utmost of our efforts. If the EU wants to live up to its values, this is the time to go for our limits. Foreign powers are competing for influence in Sudan because of its position on the map. Apparently, the EU has taken its eye off the ball. Don't make the mistake to only focus on the war in Ukraine. All kinds of leaders seize the opportunity because they see the European Union as a soft power entity. The EU has opened its doors to millions of Ukrainian refugees. The bloc is being criticized for not providing safe routes for those escaping Sudan. I hope that this will be a matter for the meeting of the Foreign Affairs Council which takes place this weekend. It's currently not on the agenda. I would urge the Commission to try to address this. Some commentators claim Washington is pouncing on the crisis with the aim of implementing ideological changes by removing Islam from Sudan's constitution. Once again, the US is accused of interference to try and further its own agenda. BRICS nations announced a new currency designed to replace the dollar. The creation of this new gold and commodity-backed currency will be discussed at the BRICS summit this August. Breakthrough News correspondent Kay Pritzker explains how this new currency could overturn the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. BRICS just announced a new global currency designed to replace the dollar. The deputy chairman of Russia's state Duma, Alexander Babakov, told reporters that the BRICS alliance, which stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, is creating a new currency that will be backed by gold, rare earth metals and other critical commodities. BRICS will likely take up the task of creating this new currency at the next BRICS summit in late August. While there's still a lot of things we don't know about the currency, the announcement alone is a huge development. Since 1945, the U.S. dollar has been the world reserve currency, meaning it acts as the standard currency for all international payments. This means that if Japan wants to trade with Thailand, they wouldn't pay each other using yen or baht, they would use the U.S. dollar. The dollar's monopoly is especially strong in the oil trade, which until recently was exclusively conducted in dollars. What this means is that every country in the world needs a constant supply of dollars on hand to buy oil and other critical goods, and to acquire those dollars, they have to manufacture real goods and sell them to the US or some other country that acquired dollars from the US. The United States, on the other hand, can print dollars, meaning they can essentially go into debt for free. Economist Barry Eichengreen describes it as the following. It costs only a few cents for the Bureau of Engraving and Printing to produce a $100 bill. But other countries have to pony up $100 of actual goods and services in order to obtain one. The other thing is that since the world financial system was set up by the U.S. and relies so heavily on the dollar, the U.S. also has the power to exclude countries from the international financial system. The U.S. controls SWIFT, the international payment system which basically functions as the blood vessels of the world financial system. The U.S. has weaponized SWIFT by banning countries it doesn't like from it like Cuba, Iran, and North Korea. The U.S. also takes advantage of the fact that many countries store their foreign reserves in U.S. banks and dollar-denominated assets. The most brazen example of this was after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, when the U.S. froze over $600 billion of gold and foreign reserves held in U.S. and EU banks, making Russia unable to pay its foreign debts. So how would a new BRICS currency change this? Well, the U.S. has the power to print money and unilaterally exclude and punish countries because the world relies on the dollar. But if enough countries make the collective decision to abandon the dollar and rally around new currencies that the U.S. doesn't control, the U.S. wouldn't have the power to manipulate the world financial system like it does now. Skeptics often say that no currency will replace the dollar because not enough countries will adopt it. But the five BRICS countries alone represent a whopping 40% of the world's population. If you add the countries that are applying for BRICS membership, it becomes a little under half. If all these countries started demanding BRICS currency in trade instead of the dollar, the rest of the world would likely have to lessen their foreign reserve holdings of US dollars and increase their holdings of the new BRICS currency. Other countries will also probably find the BRICS currency more appealing because it's not controlled by a single country, unlike the dollar. For centuries, the imperialist countries used their military and financial supremacy to siphon off resources and labor out of the rest of the world. Now those countries are banding together and starting their own currency, backed by that same wealth of resources, which will dramatically reduce the value and relevance of Western fiat currencies. While some are going to continue to insist that de-dollarization will never happen, many would argue that it's the current hegemonic position of the dollar that won't last, and that a new financial system that reflects the new multipolar world was always bound to emerge. 
And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasilyev. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. What it is, KPFK, I'm Angela Birdsong, and here is your Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar. The California Legislative Black Caucus Policy Institute Scholarship Program was established to assist deserving students by offering financial assistance to help meet educational expenses. High school seniors enrolled and graduating from a school in the state of California for the 2023 and 2024 academic year or full-time freshmen currently enrolled at, a, at an accredited college or university may apply for the 2023 Frederick M. Roberts College Scholarship. Deadline is Monday, May 15th at midnight. Apply online at cablackcaucus.org. Range Projects Gallery newest exhibit is AWOL, absent from one's post without intent to desert, with artist Joan Roby, whose body of work reflects a 20-year journey in her response to her mother's Alzheimer's disease. This exhibit runs May 13th to June 3rd at Range Projects Gallery, 3718 West Slauson Avenue in Los Angeles. Opening reception is Saturday, May 13th, 6 to 9 p.m. Call 323-528-6839 for more details or email rangeonslawson at gmail.com. Julia Smith is the curator. The 2023 Vegan Women's Summit is taking place in New York City for a three-day experience featuring industry titans as key speakers, fireside chats, and samples of hundreds of new plant-based innovations. Thursday, May 18th to Saturday, May 20th. For more info, visit veganwomensummit.com. All genders are welcome. The Tobit Center invites you to Yoga in the Park, hosted by Dr. Glenna Tobert, who to learn how yoga can help with chronic pain with an experienced instructor guiding you. Saturday, May 20th, 10 a.m., to start and to RSVP, call 818-784-7197. Gather your blankets and lawn chairs, pack your picnic, and come experience the music and drama of Otello. Under the stars for L.A. Opera's Opera on the Lawn. There will be arts and crafts and activities for families to enjoy before this free simulcast of Otello begins. Saturday, May 13th at Cal State University, Dominguez Hills. Gates open at 5.30 p.m. and broadcast begins at 7.30 p.m. Free parking on site and free shuttle service from two locations. Get more information at laopera.com. Laopera.org. Laopera.org. Othello is based on Shakespeare's play Othello. NAMI Urban LA offers adult and youth mental health first aid training to community members, organizations, and companies to identify and understand and respond to the signs of mental illnesses and substance use disorders. The training gives the skills needed to reach out and provide initial help and support to someone who may be developing a mental health or substance use problem or experiencing a crisis. To learn more about this program, go to NAMIUrbanLA.org or MentalHealthFirstAid.org. Africatown Enterprise presents the African Marketplace and Drum Circle Sundays, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Crenshaw and 43rd Place for international foods, art, clothing, live music, and more. Meet up at Come Up LA Wellness Market to shop, dance, eat, vibe, and connect with local Black-owned brands, businesses, creatives, and entrepreneurs while taking in the sights and sounds of emerging live artists and DJs. Saturday, May 13th, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the Heart Department, 1327 Willow Street in Los Angeles. To RSVP or to be a vendor, visit thecomeupla.com. 
Join Stop LAPD Spying Coalition community meetings weekly Tuesday nights on Zoom at 6 p.m. Visit StopLAPDSpying.org or Facebook for details and check out their program on KPFK Morning Mix. Radio Insurrection, Thursdays, 8 a.m. with Hamed Khan. Meet Impu Kamut for weekly Kasa Taishi Shawan sessions on Zoom Tuesdays and Fridays at 8.30 a.m. Saturdays live in Lamert Park, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. For more information, call 213-447-7700. Remember, Black Women for Wellness Sound and Stillness, a meditation moment for Black women to heal, Friday, May 12th, 6 p.m. at Crenshaw Yoga and Dance. On Saturday, May 13th, celebrate Mother's Day at their annual Mother's Day Tea. Wednesday, May 17th, 12 p.m. Join BWW's Environmental Justice Team for their next Tox Talk on Instagram Live about recent cosmetics legislation that governs our products. Later Wednesday evening, reclaim your healing with rest and resistance discussion. And next Wednesday for week three of the mental health series. BWW explores spiritual tools for mental health and wholeness. For information about Black Women for Wellness or to RSVP for these free events, go to bwwla.org. Get your green on with Jabril Muhammad of Green Thumb Essentials for a five-week beginner gardening class held on Tuesdays and Thursdays, 7 to 8 p.m. via Zoom, covering everything from basic gardening knowledge to soil prep, compost, pest control, and more. Learn everything you need to know to start growing your own food and connect with nature. For more info, search Green Thumb Essentials on Eventbrite. For no-cost produce distributions taking place at clinics in Los Angeles County, visit dhslacounty.gov. That's dhs.lacounty.gov. To find food pantries near you in the USA, go to foodfinder.us. To locate a Los Angeles Tenants Union meeting in your area online or over the phone or in person, Visit latenantsunion.org. For mental health resources, crisis support, helplines, and warm lines, go to namiurbanla.org under resources. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions. You've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. KPFK is a non-commercial listener-sponsored educational radio. Let's stay connected to each other in a place where our communities listen together and work together and fight together, enjoying the variety of cultural expressions here on KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. And we appreciate your support as we build and reimagine what community radio should look like. Make sure you go to kpfk.org, learn more about us, and also donate. You can go to kpfk.org and click Donate. And if you want to become part of our news show or if you have a news tip or story or if you're out there reporting, especially in some of our sister stations areas in San Diego, Santa Barbara, Ridgecrest, China Lake, San Bernardino, reach out to us at news at kpfk.org and let us know how we can put that report on our broadcast. Thanks to our engineer, Wendell Handy, and all the Rebel Alliance news contributors. We hope you will join us again tomorrow at 6 p.m. Until then, let all that you do be done with love. Have a great evening, Los Angeles. Coming up next is American Indian Airwaves.
I'm searching for that silver lining Horizons that I've never seen Oh, I'd like to take just a moment 